you know, it's funny. Um, we've been using these little boy band mics for like uh, like four years. It's two weeks before I have to turn it in. I finally figured out how to make it stay on without tape, uh, which is pretty cool. Hey, if you've got a Bible, go ahead and turn to the book of Matthew. That's in your New Testament. It is uh, the first book in the New Testament, in fact. And you're going to go to the last chapter of that first book, Matthew 28, for our sermon this morning. We, we've been uh, going, this is actually, well, it's not the last, but uh, we're, we're finishing up in the next couple weeks uh, these, this, uh, this series we've called Parting Words. And we've been doing this series primarily, I mean, besides the obvious, uh, that there's a transition about to happen, because transitions are not foreign to God's people. Uh, we go through them, and God's people went through them, and, and there have been these things that have happened over and over, and so the question is, okay, so what, what do we need to hear uh, in the midst of these? What, what is helpful to us? And so we've been looking at a bunch of different pastors, right? So, uh, so we've looked at things that Paul has said, and we did that last week, and then we've looked at things that Jude, the book of Jude, talks about, and then Jesus has said some things, about to say some more things. The question that we're going to be looking at this morning, ultimately, is, is one of them. Now that Jesus has lived for us, now that he has died for us, and now he has risen again for us, and I know not everyone in here is, is quite believing that yet, that's okay, just, just stick with me, just grant the argument for a second. But now that he's done all these things, what are we here for? Right, what's the, what's the point of this? Jesus did all this work. As Christians, we believe Jesus did all this work. It was really awesome. So now what? And that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. So if you have your place in uh, either your order or your Bible or what's behind me, go ahead and stand. That's what we do around here. We're in Matthew 28, verses 16, down through the end of the book, verse 20. This is God's word. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountains which Jesus had directed them, and when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Grass withers the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we have, we have come into this place with different thoughts, different experiences of our last couple weeks. Some of us are just clinging to you as best we can. Others of us are rejoicing full of faith, and some of us just don't even know why we're here, just wandered in, and we're invited, wondering how long this is going to take. You meet with us, and you have called us to this place. It is not an accident that any of us are here, so we ask that you would meet with us this morning, and that you would change us by your word. Do it for your glory's sake, do it for our good, if we need it, we need you, and we ask it in your name. Amen. So there's a ton in this passage. I just want to jump right in if we can because I don't want to, 
I don't want us to, to miss out anything, or I don't want, uh, quite frankly, uh, uh, for us to be here all day. So let's let's jump in, let's jump right in. So um, you've probably heard these verses before, especially if you've kind of grown up in the church, been in the church, and especially if you've been here at Holy Cross. You've heard these verses before. Like these are pretty famous verses. It's called, for those of you who aren't familiar, it's called the Great Commission, right? It's the it's the last words of Jesus that we have recorded, um, and, and it's often used as kind of this mission statement type thing. Um, the, the danger, of course, with verses and passages that are really familiar is that we can just kind of check out thinking, oh, I've, Rick, you don't know how many sermons I've heard on this. Can we just, I don't know how many sermons you've done on this. Can we just not. Right? So we're all we're thinking about something else. Uh, and so the danger there is that we're not really open to what the Spirit might be wanting to teach us today. Right? So I would encourage you to do your best to try and um, get into this. Now, before we get into these verses specifically, let me, let me talk really quick about the one who wrote them. So this is uh, Matthew's Gospel. And if you're not familiar with that, what a Gospel is simply... Well, it's kind of a unique uh, form of literature. There's nothing else like in the ancient world. The closest thing we have is kind of these, these uh, biographies of ancient teachers and, and things like that. Great, great people would have these biographies, but it's, it even kind of moves off of that genre a little bit. So it's unique. But what it is, is it's telling the story of Jesus. It's telling the story of what he came to do, what he said, and the things that kind of accompanied his life and his ministry. And this is written by a guy named Matthew. Uh, Matthew, hmm. if you were a Jew in the first century, Matthew was oh, as close to the worst kind of person that you could imagine. He was, to, to say he was a tax collector doesn't quite get it across, right? Because for us tax collectors, no one really, I mean, if, you're, if you work for the IRS, I'm sorry, but no one really is enjoying tax collecting. No one, you know, my mom, uh, back when we lived in rural Spotsylvania County, she, one of the jobs she did at one point was a tax assessor, where she would go out with her little rolling thing and measure people's properties and all this stuff. And it was not unusual for her to get chased off of properties with shotguns and dogs, right? Because uh, no one enjoys seeing a tax assessor. But this is even worse. I want you to imagine that you live in an occupied nation, right? It's hard for Americans, but let's try. You live in an occupied nation where the ruling class and the, rule, the folks who rule uh, can basically do whatever they want to you whenever they want because you have no legal recourse because you're occupied, you're conquered. And in that, let's say your neighbor, because you know your neighbor is like, I need a job. So what your neighbor decides to do is to work with the occupiers to get money from you to support their occupation. Oh, but it's worse. Because to get that money and to, to get that job, what he tells the occupiers is, I can get you more money than this next guy. It's a contract business. He's a contractor. And so he says, I can get you more money than this other guy. And so they hire him because he's going to be the most effective at his job to get money from you to support the people that are occupying you and abusing you day in and day out. But there's more. Because not only has he got the best contract to get the most money out of you for the, the, the government that's more or less enslaving you, but the way he gets paid is by taking even more from you 
than what he's going to give to them. And he is rich, while you are poor. So Matthew, what it means to be a tax collector in the first century, is you're basically a government-sponsored shakedown artist. You have, a, you, have a, you have like a protection scheme, more or less. And to support that, at your little desk and you do your thing out in public, there are two Roman soldiers standing on either side of you, just so people get the, the message across. Are we understanding who this guy is? And so one day, as he's sitting there, this, this up-and-coming rabbi, this up-and-coming teacher that people have been talking about, stops by his little tax collecting desk, and I'm sure that was a wonderful time. Uh, I'm sure he was probably nervous, frankly, not knowing what was about to happen. And the guy looks at him and he says, come follow me. And for whatever reason, and you know, we can look back and say, oh, the spirit was at work, but for whatever reason, he left his contract, he left his exorbitant, obscene prophets, and he followed. He followed Jesus. That's who Matthew is. And so he decides to write down this gospel of things that he had seen, things he had heard in this time, and some things that he researched because it predated him, okay? And this, that means that when we're talking about this particular event, Matthew was there. Now, let's look down. Look down at verses 16 to 17. These are like some of my favorite verses in the Bible. Eleven disciples go to Galilee. They go to the mountain that Jesus directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubt. Let me catch you up. 42 days ago, Jesus had been killed after a, after a kangaroo court trial, and he had been executed, not as the one who is uh, telling everyone they're self-righteous, but he had been executed by Rome because he claimed to be the Messiah. And that doesn't mean sacrifice. It means the king. That he was king and not Caesar. And so he was, he was executed by Rome, he rose from the dead, and now 42 days later, he's hanging out with his remaining followers, all 11 of them. That went well, right? Three years well spent. Got those 11 guys. He tells them to go meet in a mountain in Galilee. Galilee is a northern province. Many of them were from there. And he goes, and they go to the mountain, and Jesus is there like he said he would be. And Matthew tells us that they all see him, and they worshiped him, but some doubted. Hmm. I talk about that verse a lot, so I'm not going to go over it a bunch. Just, if you're here this morning, and you have doubts about Jesus, about the Christian story, can I tell you, you're in good company. Because so did his closest followers, while he stood in front of them. So if you're like, well, church can't be for me, I've got all these questions. They doubted him while he was standing in front of them, raised from the dead. Right? I mean, at least you've got 2,000 years of history of not seeing him to kind of make up for the doubts. They, you know, and so yeah, it's crazy. It's crazy, right? Now, um, let's, uh, let, let's move on. Look down at verse 18. He says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Okay? This is something we can totally gloss over. But can I tell you that this is the single most revolutionary, literally revolutionary, statement in probably the entire Bible. Because think about it for a minute. 
they're standing in a, on a mountain in Galilee. And Galilee is a backwoods, backwater province that is under the authority of Rome. And Rome has a ruler, right? Caesar. And anyone who claims to be anything other than, or who claims to be ruler in, in, in lieu of Caesar, or in place of Caesar, gets killed, like Jesus already was. And so here's Jesus standing in, in, the, in, the, in, in a backwoods province of the most powerful empire of the world, extended from England all the way to India and down into North Africa. And he's standing there and he's saying, I am actually the one with all authority. I have been given all of the, I am the ruler of the world. So where does he get that? Well, not to be too trite, right? But he gets that from the fact that he died and rose again. Like Rome, Rome did the worst it could do to you. Rome can do a, Rome can do a lot of things to you, right? But the worst they could do to you is kill you. And the worst kind of death they could give you was, would be one where you are staked to a wooden crossbeam and hung there to asphyxiate slowly. That's pretty bad, right? And so it's the worst possible thing they could do to him to exercise their authority. And he, three days after it happened, gets up and he's like, yeah, we're good. Is that all you got? Like, I, I'm fine with this. I can handle this. The Romans and the Jewish authorities executed Jesus because of the claim he is making right here. And I know, our, you know, our culture is not big on authority, although there is a paradox there, is there not? Because we're not big on authority, but we're becoming more and more desirous of other people telling us exactly what to do in what circumstances and to tell other people they can't. It's weird. It's weird. That's a little bit of a paradox. But we're not huge on authority, on, on authority. but when Jesus claimed the title Messiah or Christ, the word Christ is not Jesus' last name. It is a title. It is a title of king. And the Old Testament talked about that title as, as a role that was going to be taken up by, the, by somebody that God was going to send to make the world right again, to fix it, and to restore us to God. And that's what Jesus is claiming here. He's saying that everything that he is about to tell them, these last parting words he has for them, are coming out of the fact that he is the one who has all authority over all of the planet. If you're thinking at all, what's going on is you're going, it doesn't much look like it. Right? I mean, it's hard enough to find a church that's healthy, better yet, the world. It's hard enough to find a church in which we would already claim that we follow Jesus, to find that to be in good shape, better yet, those that don't. And if you're thinking, like, well, I don't see that, again, remember where they are. <laughs> Caesar is still on his throne, which means Jesus is claiming that, in fact, those authorities, those rulers are uh, an insurrection. And that despite what they may see, this is the truth. Caesar did his worst to Jesus and Jesus rose from the dead. And when a dude rises from the dead and he says he is in charge, you listen. Right? Now, that 
That brings us to the call itself. Look at verse 19. Now, structurally, and I know, like, you know, when we start talking about structure and grammar and all this stuff, half of us check out because we're like, I was done with that in that period. I get it, but this is actually pretty important. Structurally, the call that he gives comes in the mission that I'm going to get to in a second. But the first thing I wanted to note is uh, that he simply says this. We've got verse 19, first one. Go. Go. Now, let me remind us of who is listening as he says this. This is not an elite group of people. This is not a uh, group of religious professionals. This is not um, a, a cadre of those who are incredibly well-trained and ready for anything that could come at them. These are fishermen and tax collectors and um, several other possible things that they did. This is, this, is, this is an everyday group of people. This is an everyday group of people. They are simply normal. In fact, this is the only group of followers that remains. It's just as, this is it. There'll be some more later as they get gathered again, but this is it. And so he tells them to go. He tells them to go to all nations. Now think about that for a minute. Again, Jesus has said he has all authority, like all authority over everything. He's telling 11 people, I have your next phase of life. You are going to go everywhere and make followers out of everyone you can find. 11 people. Here's your mission, you 11. And he's claiming this because all authority has been given to him, which means that the nations are actually his. Now, here's what makes this hard. Because one of the things that Jesus is not saying is, listen, guys, y'all believe me. I'm your authority, but I'm not everybody else's. It's okay. You've got to let them go their own way. If they choose to be, they can have my authority. They can be under my authority if they want to be, if they believe in me. It's not what he's saying. He's saying, recognize me or not, believe in me or not, honor me or not, I am the authority now. I am the king of the world. And if you want to, and so I'm going to send you to all nations, both to proclaim that to others, so that they can stop doing the, whatever it is they're doing, the rebellion they're doing, and go, oh, that's the ruler. Okay. Sorry. I'll follow him instead. All authority is mine, he says. And so go to everything that is mine. That's gutsy. And for some of us, that's a little offensive. I'll get to that here in a second. The last thing about this that I want to mention is simply this. They are called to go in spite of their circumstances. Here's what I mean. We know that Peter had a mother-in-law. Generally, you don't get a mother-in-law unless you have a wife, right? So Peter has a wife. We know that. Paul talks about it, which means Peter has a family. More than likely, not, I mean, it's, it's certainly possible this is not the case. There's plenty of stories in the Bible about this. We don't have any evidence necessarily apart from tradition, but 
that would generally mean that Peter probably also has kids, like a family. So he's got a family. He also, along with his brother Andrew, and with James and John, two of the other guys, so there's four of these guys in this group, they have a small business. And by small business, I don't mean like just them. They're small business owners. They have a fishing outfit. I don't know if you knew it, like they're fishermen. And their fishing outfit kept going even when they left, which meant that they had employees. Matthew, of course, he's got his little tech collecting business, which, you know, I mean, he's extorting people. He probably wouldn't do that. But that doesn't mean he's not there to still collect taxes. He could do that. And Jesus is telling them to go. These aren't people who have, like, no ties, um, they're, they're, they're no responsibilities. They can just devote all of their attention, all of their time to this without any impact on their life. These are, this is us. This is normal people. Just like you, just like, well, I mean, I'm a religious professional, so uh, you could go, all right, that doesn't count. You're right. It's y'all, okay? It's just like, just normal people. And he tells them to go. And the why, why does he tell them to go? It comes from the authority. All authority is given to him, which means for a first century Jew, that he is now king of the world. And he got there, according to the New Testament, he became king of the world because of what he did. Because 42 days previous to this, he did something incredible. He came to deal with what the Bible calls our rebellion. Our, the, the, the word sin is thrown in there, but, but we can often associate sin just with certain things, right? This is the valley. This is still about the Bible. We have, we have certain things we call sin, but the Bible has a more holistic sense to it. That sin is actually not just a few behaviors. It has to do with a general posture, a posture that is independent of God, whether that looks immoral or moral. You could be very moral and not have want anything to do with God. As a matter of fact, there's lots of very, very moral people, way more moral than I am. Maybe you're one. That's not the issue. The issue in the Bible is: Are you are you bent away from God? Are you are you independent? You want your independence from Him, or do you want to be dependent on Him? And Jesus came to deal with the weight of our rebellion. He lived a life that we couldn't. He was perfect before God. And then before God, he bore the punishment of our rebellion, and then he rose from the dead. God dealt with our issue, our problem, in Jesus, reconciled us to himself in Jesus. So their fuel for going out into the world is that all authority has been given to him because of what he's done. In other words, Jesus has done all the work, now go. Go and tell everybody about it. Now, here's the problem, right? And you guys have heard messages on this if you're if you raised in the church or you've been in church for a while and you've heard this but here's here's the reality right we don't like to talk about it but this is reality jesus said go and make and we've turned that into sit and watch right that most things are really for that that's for the guys we pay right i mean we pay them that's what they're supposed to do now, don't check out on me when I say that, because remember, when Jesus is saying this, and he's saying this to the only followers he has left, do they happen to also be those that he calls apostles? Yes, but you know what apostle means? It means sent. Sent one. They are people with families and responsibilities and all things. 
And Jesus says, no, 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 now, where are you? I'm sending you. Go. This is not just a few select. Jesus' parting words here are sending his people, not his professionals. And he sends all of them. So that brings us to the mission. Okay, stay in verse 19. Because he says to go and make disciples. Now, when you say the word disciples, that is about as churchy a word as you can get. The only other context in our culture that we use the word disciple is with a cult. Okay? So, that deserves a little bit of explanation. Alright? The word disciple um, does not mean mindless automaton who's, you know, constantly, yes, whatever. It, it is a follower. It is a learner. Right? It, it, has, it has the connotation of someone who is learning, okay? Uh, and, and structurally, this right here, to make disciples, is literally the centerpiece of the entire passage. The entire passage here is centered on that one word. Everything else stems from this. And so they are to make disciples baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, again, if you're not familiar with Christianity, uh, Christians believe in one God and three persons, right? One what? Three who's, right? One in essence, three in their personhood. Uh, and, and that is incredibly unique to Christianity. No, no, no one else thinks that. That's, as a matter of fact, most people in other uh, religious worldviews like, tend to find that as the biggest stumbling well, they say. That's the big stumbling point to them accepting anything else that comes from Christianity. Because, like, one does not equal three, right? Like, we, we get that. That doesn't make... And yet, that's what's going on here. And so, in other words, when he says, go make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the, this unique name of God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that's unique to Christianity, what he's saying is, go and make more Christians. Go and make more Christians. And as soon as I say that, some of us get really offended by, by this. But I think you have to understand, in the middle of it, why, why we think that is important. Right? If you're new to church, this is why conversion, or making converts, making more Christians, why we think this is so important. Because, you see, Christians believe that all of humanity, including us, is, are, are by nature in rebellion against God. That it's not simply something we do, it's something that we are. We are stuck in our independence. And now here's the important thing. Because unlike, the, the, one, the completely unique thing about Christianity is that it doesn't give you rules to follow to make that right. Right? Others do. Whether it's, whether it's Islam, or whether it's Buddhism, whether it's, you know, all of these other kind of ways of doing things will give you Rules to follow, rituals to do, and all these things. No, no. Christianity gives you a person to trust. It tells you that your issue is not keeping the right rules. Your issue is that you need a better ruler to keep you. That in fact, like, that's the whole point. That we need to leave our independence. And the way we do that is by is to stop placing our hopes on our abilities or on some other system and instead to place them on Jesus. In other words, we depend on Jesus. And when we depend on Jesus, we return to dependence on God. And if that is God's 
only way to return to dependence on him, to be rescued out of our guilt, to be pulled away from the judgment that we believe is due. What kind of a people would we be if we were like, nah, the rest of you just go your way. <laughs> Whatever. Believe what you want. We would literally, we would literally be telling the world to go to hell. Literally. If that was our outlook. Like, it's good for me, not good for you. Good luck. Have fun. Got a lifeboat. If you want to climb in, climb in. But if not, like, I'm not going to do much to help you. Like, you're, you're there. We would be like the most unloving people ever, right? So that's why we talk about this. But two more things about this. First, notice that Jesus isn't saying, go do this so that I will like you. <laughs> Jesus is the one who conquered sin, death, and hell. Jesus has done all that needed to be done to rescue us from our betrayal of God. And now he offers that freely to any and all who would come to him. Any and all who will place their faith in him. He does this purely out of his grace. Which means that Christians do not seek to see other people become Christians because we feel insecure about what we believe. I know that's what a lot of people think. Like, oh, you're just trying to get more followers so that you're not marginalized. No, no. We don't, we don't need to feel secure because there's lots of people in a room. We're secure in Jesus. We don't need to be secure because other people agree with us. Nor do we do this because we need to make God happy with us. We do it because God is happy with us, but only in Jesus. And so if that's the case, then he can be happy with them too. In other words, we're, we are, as I like to say often, I wish I had made it up, I didn't. But we're beggars, helping other beggars know where they can find bread. That's it. Secondly, Jesus telling his people to go make disciples implies that you are not born one. Right? And, and listen, all of us here in this church, we say this all the time, I, I, I know that this is the case for, for what I want for my kids, I know for you too. We, we all kind of want our kids to have the story that says, I never knew a time when I didn't love Jesus. He's just kind of always been my life. I always loved him. And, and I, I want that story uh, for my kids. It wasn't my story. Uh, I want that for them. I want that for your kids. However, you may not be able to remember a day when you didn't love Jesus and have faith in them, but you aren't born a Christian. Disciples are made, and they are made by other disciples. Okay? And that leads to conforming. This is great. Jesus tells them not just to baptize, but to teach them to obey everything he commanded. In other words, the issue is not simply a convert. Right? I know that in, mo in a lot of places, what well, you've probably heard as, as preachers stand up to talk about this, is this is like the, the sermon that they kick off the great evangelism series with. They kick it off. They, this is a, to get everybody to go out and move. But you have to understand that this passage is not simply about making converts, about making disciples. And so there's this other part of it. He's not looking for converts. He's looking for followers. A disciple of Jesus is not marked by a decision made at a youth camp 20 years ago. 
They're marked by a, a, a lifestyle of faith and repentance that brings their whole life under his authority, right? And so here's the other great thing. Telling, Jesus telling his followers to teach other people to obey means that it doesn't happen automatically. It doesn't happen automatically. In other words, once you become a Christian, it's not like you suddenly, everything is made right in your life. I said goodbye, my cigarettes threw it away, I never talked about it again. I tossed the drugs out. Yes, that may happen. That could happen. Is it like what we would expect to happen every time? No. If so, Jesus wouldn't have said, hey, by the way, teach them how to follow me. Teach them how these things are supposed to work out. And this is huge, so it really needs to sink in. If you're here this morning, and you think, man, I got dragged into this church again. I can't do this. I can't get my stuff together, and I know I can't. You're in a great company. Or, if you are a Christian here this morning, and you bought into the lie, right? That part of that is having a polished facade. And I don't just mean if you don't have a whole lot of hair up here. I mean like a polished facade. Like I have to look good. I have to pretend that sin was something I dealt with then, but it is not something I deal with now. I have to pretend that though Jesus says that we have to be taught how to obey, that I've actually, I've got this. Then if you've bought into that, I need you to see this. This one phrase from the mouth of Jesus should embrace that. Every one of us, especially me, needs to be taught how to follow Jesus. Taught the implications of faith. Taught how it plays out in the various spheres of our life. Taught when we're doing something that we shouldn't. Right? And that gives us space. Space to be in process. We should not be surprised, whether in our own life or in the life of somebody in our small group, certainly not in the lives of our children, parents, listen, we should not be surprised when they need to be taught how to follow Jesus. When there's something going on in our life and somebody comes to us and says, hey, you know what, I've seen this. You, I don't think this is lining up with what it means to follow Jesus. We don't have to get defensive. No, of course. Thanks. Thanks for helping me learn. And oh, by the way, I see this in your life. No, don't do that. But like, <laughs> that's what we like to do, right? We shouldn't be surprised. Of course that's the way it is. Even the Apostle Paul, who, you know, if you, again, if you're a church you're like, oh, Paul, he's the guy. Even he said, the good I want to do, I don't do. It's the evil I hate, I do. A wretched man that I am. Like, even he said that. If he said that, like, I'm in big trouble, right? 
I can't either. You know what makes it really easy for me to live up to your expectation of the Christian image? You don't really know me. Like most of us in this room, you know the preacher from here. And from this distance, I would imagine that the temptation is to make whoever's up here look out to be really good. <laughs> you don't know me. <laughs> and so do Most of you don't. I'm learning day by day what it means to follow Jesus today. And tomorrow, I'll have to learn about tomorrow. And so do So let me get to the presence. Look at verse 20. Jesus says, followers go and multiply. I'm the authority in all the world. And this is really important for us to get because we get this wrong all the time. Jesus says, I'm with you always. We're going to get to that. But he says that to those he is just told to go and make disciples. So let me be specific here. Christ is promising his presence, his his ongoing fellowship with those who are multiplying themselves. Now, I say that and immediately what we begin thinking is oh, come on, come on, Jesus, Jesus is with me. Yes, you're right, he is. Is Jesus with his people by the Spirit? Yes. Is Jesus with us always? Yes. But this verse is specifically about our going. His parting words for us to go. So why is that important? Why is he, number one, why is he with us in our going? Because it's his mission, not ours. He's outgoing. Like, he's, he's going. He came for some of you. He came for me. When I was looking for him. And so he's going. So are we going to be going with him? Like, you and I can't make disciples. You can't make a disciple. You can't even change your own heart. Like, you can't make yourself into a disciple. Like, I can't make people follow Jesus. Like, you know, again, the Apostle Paul in, in uh, you know, his later writings talks about people outside of Jesus, like before we come to Jesus, are dead in their sins and trespasses. Any takers are being able to raise the dead? Nobody? Okay. I'm just making sure. All right. But, because if so, I got a money-making scheme. All right? But, no, like, no, but Jesus can and he says he'll be with us as we go because he is going. All right? Lastly comes that promise, his presence. He says, I will be with you always. Listen, if you're a Christian here this morning, I hope you know this, but I'm going to drill it down again. You are not a Christian because you are smarter than your neighbor. That somehow you got it and they don't. That you got convinced by the right apologetic argument. You got convinced by the right preacher. That, that you somehow uh, had the responsible decision to place your faith in Jesus. Or, even better, that, that you're kind of more moral than your co-worker. Like, I'm smarter than my neighbor, I'm more moral than my co-worker. Or that God is just kind of lucky to have me. That is not why you're a Christian. If you're a Christian here this morning, you are a Christian. Because Jesus came to you when you were dead in your sins and trespasses. He kicked down the door of your heart. And he rose you to life so that when someone presented the gospel to you, you were like, yes. That makes the most sense of anything I've ever heard in my life. Because dead people don't get up and choose. God does that work. 
It's all about his grace. Jesus lived perfectly, he died sacrificially, and he rose victoriously all for you. And when you were an enemy, he came and he brought you into his kingdom. He is the one who does this work. And so if you're a Christian here this morning and you're thinking, Rick, I can't make a disciple, like I said, join the club. Because neither can I. If Jesus were to say, go and get this done on your own, hey, go, make disciples of all nations, baptize them, get all that done, I'll see you when you come home. Then every one of us is lost. Because if we will be disobedient to him, because we can't do it. <laughs> right? When Jesus called these first followers, these 11 people, to someone he said, come and follow me. Some of you know these next words go. And I will make you into fishers of men. Not and you'll figure it out. Not and uh, come and follow me and I'll give you some tips and tricks. He says, I'm going to do this in you. I'm going to make you into this. Is it because Peter was smarter than other people? No. Have you read the guy? Like Peter was an idiot. No offense, buddy. I mean, I'll meet him one day and he'll probably agree with me. The guy just, as someone who speaks a lot and knows what this is like, the guy stuck his foot in his mouth all the time. Right? James and John, were they awesome people? No. As a matter of fact, when they came across people that didn't want to follow Jesus, what they suggested was that Jesus burn down their town. Woo, there goes Christian charity right there. Like, I love, Jesus, I know you love these people. Send fire from heaven. Consume them. Right? Not an evangelistic strategy. Just saying. That's not why they are able to do what they do. They're able to do what they do because Jesus says, I will make you this. I will do this. I will do this. We are simply called to arrange an encounter with Jesus. And he will take care of what he takes care of. So let me leave you with a couple of thoughts. The first is this. And it, it is a question that I would want every one of us to ask. No matter how, how, you know, whether you're brand new to this church or not. Are the things that you're living for right now worth Jesus dying for? Right? The things that we're living for. The race. The vacation. Just getting through Thanksgiving. Are the things that we're living for worth Jesus dying for? See, Jesus died to see the lost rescued and the world transformed by transformed people. And so are the things that you're living for worth him dying for? As Jesus followers, we give our lives to something because he gave his life for it. But second, these are the V parting words of Jesus. This is it. You don't get any more. Gone. Up and heaven. This is it. His parting words. The mission statement of his church. But so what, right? That means that if a church, we'll just have a hypothetical one, okay? 
hypothetical church is not organized around the process of taking enemies of God and working to see them become disciples of Jesus, engaging with outsiders to bring them in. If the church isn't doing that, it's being disobedient. I know somebody's thinking, what about all these other ministries? Aren't they important? Yes, absolutely. The issue is not what ministries a church does. The issue is something different. It's not about what you do. Like It's not. It's about how you do it. Will the ministries that you're doing be welcoming to outsiders and those who are just learning how to obey? Sure, absolutely. Have a ministry to strengthen marriages. Absolutely. In this church, we are all about that. But could, could outsiders come in and understand what you're talking about? Because you know who else needs strong marriages? Them. You know, yes. Absolutely. Have an excellent children's ministry. And expect and plan for the involvement of kids with no church background. And their parents. Yes, build authentic Christian community in your groups. Absolutely. Those of you who know me know that that is, that is one thing that I have pled for here. Like, build them. And prepare yourself for the doubts and questions that come from those who don't believe of what you're talking about. But will they see you live in that community. It's not about what you do, it's about how you do it. It's not about whether or not you're going to be seeker sensitive. It's about whether or not, and by the way, don't please don't do that. But it's about whether or not everything you do, every aspect of what we do, is formed around the idea of this mission, taking an outsider, bringing them in making them a disciple and teaching them how to obey, expecting that people in your groups and in your ministries are, they don't know what they're doing. Neither do you. And it's okay to admit that. Please remember the outsider. Please. I was one of them. I remember that. You probably, you were too, whether you remember it or not. And Jesus is telling us that we are here to make disciples of them. Did you pray with me? Jesus, thank you that you did not leave us to just do this mission alone. That you, in fact, are with us. And you've shown that in this congregation. Because as we have gone, as we have invited our neighbors, invited our friends, brought them into our groups, brought them into our kids' ministries, brought them into just the life of the church, you have changed people. That has been glorious to be a part of. So Lord, would you keep our hearts from turning inward on ourselves? Keep our hearts focused on your glory being spread for more voices. Even though a thousand aren't enough, no 
multitudes upon multitudes of voices will never be enough to give you the praise you do. Give us hearts that may try.